This is a news article from the Belvedere Daily Republican in Belvedere, Illinois, on Tuesday, July 25th, 1944. The headline reads, Nazi steel tank factory blasted by U.S. bombers. And the story reads, London, July 25. A force of up to 500 Italy-based U.S. heavy bombers escorted by Lightnings and Mustangs wreaked havoc in the new Hermann Goring tank works in Linz, Austria today as a record-breaking armada of 1,500 heavies smashed at the German battle lines in Normandy. This was the first time the barely completed Hermann Goring tank plant has been bombed. It was designed to produce 1 million tons of iron and steel a year, as well as to manufacture tanks and armored cars. A considerable number of enemy aircraft were encountered on the Linz raid, and some were reported shot down. Welcome back to part three of our special series on my grandfather's journey through World War II. It is July 25th, 1944. Bob and his crew have successfully completed their first mission the day prior without any enemy opposition. And at 0500 the next day, the 461st Bomber Group briefs its 26 planes from its four squadrons that they will be sending out on mission 69. The target is the Hermann Goring Tank Works plant in Linz, Austria. This plant was designed to produce 1 million tons of iron and steel per year, and it's nearing completion, and the Allies were going to try to prevent that from coming to fruition. In reading from the briefing report, start engines call at 6.45 a.m., first ship take off at 7 a.m., and the group is to assemble over Malfi at an altitude of 8,000 feet at 7.56 a.m., it takes a bit to have 26 planes take off, so there'll be a rallying point to meet up. And the first groups to take off will do this long, gradual U-turn, giving the other planes time to take off and reach altitude. So by the time the last planes are taken off, they're meeting up with that tail end of the first group that's kind of flying back to the airfield. Okay, does that make sense? So the initial planes take off, they fly for a while, bang a U-turn and come back, and then pick everybody kind of just jumps in on line, and the planes shuffle into formation. Major Burke is leading the attack, and his 766 squadron takes the first diamond formation. The squad from the 767th takes the position on Burke's right, and the squad from the 764th takes Burke's left. And bringing up the rear of the diamond, a.k.a. Coffin Corner, or in the Purple Heart position is Bob and the rest of the 765th Squadron. So once in formation, the four squads of the 461st Bomber Division rendezvous with squadrons from the 484th, who is flying at an altitude of 7,000 feet, and then they meet up with squadrons from the 451st, who will be flying at 9,000 feet. And in the briefing, the pilots are given directions to the objective. And this is what the navigator is using during the flight, to tell the pilots what to do and where to go. 
Once they rendezvous with the other bombing divisions over Bonnevo, they head to Castellanuvu at a heading of 331 on the compass at a distance of 26 miles at 824 a.m. And then they'll do a series of turns. So then they'll go from there to Silba, where they'll change their heading to 357 at a distance of 126 miles, climbing to 21,000 feet. Then once they get to that waypoint, they will switch headings to Bakovi, climbing to 23,000 feet. So a couple more turns, they finally get to Melk by 10.43 a.m., where they will meet up with the American fighter pilots and P-38s who will be providing air support. The fighter pilots will always take position above the bombers. Okay, so from Welk, they'll turn to heading 303 on the compass at a distance of 25 miles to Weizenbach, and then onto the target, the Hermann Goring Tank Works, heading of 248 on the compass, 20 miles, arriving at target at 11 a.m. Each of the B-24s is carrying five 1,000-pound bombs, 2,700 gallons of fuel, full ammunition for their 50-caliber machine guns, and full oxygen tanks. It's almost 11 a.m. on Tuesday, July 25, 1944, as a formation nears the target when the first flak explosion goes off around the bombers. The flak is slang for the versatile 88-millimeter cannon that was Germany's main heavy anti-aircraft gun during World War II. So when the 88-millimeter projectile explodes at altitude, it sends out jagged metal fragments in every direction that can easily tear through any aircraft that's nearby. It also leaves that characteristic little black cloud hanging in the sky. You've probably seen that in the movies. This heavy gun could propel its 20-pound high-explosive shell to altitudes beyond 30,000 feet, and they could do about 15 of these per minute. And when an 88 shell hit a bomber directly, it would often completely destroy the plane. And remember, these planes are just a steel shell with a sheet metal body, so they're very vulnerable to this exploding shrapnel. So the Germans will position their guns to be able to cover the approach to the target, forcing the bombers to have to fly through their exploding ordnance. So they're not aiming at specific planes. They're aiming where the planes will have to fly through. The Germans use sound detection, they'll use radar, and spotlights if it's at night to detect the planes. Once detected, they just need to figure out the bomber's altitude, the direction they're traveling, and their speed. And in this 11-man crew, they have a gunner who will fire the gun. They have one guy responsible of getting the elevation of the gun set up. They have a breach operator clearing the old shells after they've been fired. They have a fuse setter, so they use timed fuses so that the projectile explodes at roughly the same altitude as the bombers. So the longer they set the fuse for, the higher in the sky it will go before exploding. And rounding out the flat gun team, there are five ammo handlers, so five guys just feeding new rounds and getting rid of the old rounds. And these are four-foot shells. So it takes some manpower to get them into the gun and then out of the gun and then actually go stack them away from the gun so you're not tripping over them. And there's also a commander and a driver that would tow this gun. These guns are big and they need to be towed by a sizable truck. You can't tow this thing with a Jeep. This gun weighs 4.9 tons, and then with all the shit on it, it's probably closer to 7 tons. So that's 14,000 pounds of gun. Okay, this thing's shooting projectiles at 2,700 feet per second, and it can shoot them as high as 35,000 feet. 
And the other benefit of these guns is that the higher you can push the bombers up to avoid the flak, the harder it is to hit the target. Because at 8,000 feet, the bombardier can see the target relatively easy. The odds of a successful drop increase. So by forcing the bombers up to 23,000 feet with that flak, it's a good defense. But make no mistake, the flak was more than a nuisance, making you just fly at a higher altitude. At least one half of the United States aircraft shot down over Germany fell to flak. It was about 5,380 planes were shot down because of flak. Back to the mission. So as they approach the target, the flak starts. And it's a lot. Like a lot. Because the more valuable the target is, the more protected they are with anti-aircraft guns and German fighter planes. And this is a high-value target that the Germans knew the Allies would try to bomb, so they were ready. And also, because of its location halfway between Vienna and Munich, and it was right smack dab in the middle of their two airfields that had the best German Luftwaffe, which is their air force, around. The best German fighter pilots from the Flying Circus and the Abbeville Kids, pilots so good and respected that the Royal Air Force named them after their hometown of Abbeville. This bombing target is heavily fortified by anti-aircraft guns, and it's further supported by two of the best German air forces that they have. The bombers, led by General Burke, fly into flak so thick you could get out and walk on it. And that was a common phrase to describe heavy anti-aircraft fire. Each black cloud was caused by an exploding flak projectile, and they look like little baby clouds. So Burke's plane is hit immediately by flak, killing four airmen. The plane drops out of the sky, and the six other crew members were missing in action. And then, as soon as the flak started, it stopped. And seconds later, radio communication from the American fighters above the bombers Enemy fighters, coming up 6 o'clock low. Good luck. There's nothing the American fighter pilots can do from above the bombers other than convey what they see. So that's what Bob and every other pilot heard coming over his headset. Enemy fighters, coming up 6 o'clock low. Good luck. And in a blink of an eye, 25 twin-engine German BF-110s came up from below, sending rockets right into the open bomb bay doors of the bombers. That was followed by 125 BF-109 fighter planes. And these fighters made one pass up through the U.S. bombers and then disappeared back below, and then the flak resumed. Eleven bombers were knocked down as parachutes, tracers, those are the bullets you can see, rockets, enemy fighters, and exploding bombers filled the air with absolute confusion and mayhem. Of the 11 bombers of the 461st Bomber Group, 1st Lieutenant Glenn Folk's plane crashed and burned. All crew members were killed in action. Lieutenant Ray Stick's aircraft had five soldiers that were killed while in flight. And then after the crash, two bombs still on board the plane exploded. Lieutenant William Albright was shot by a Nazi in the vicinity of the wreck. And four of their crew members were still missing in action. Pilot Edwin Boyer's ship crashed and five soldiers burnt together with their plane while five others were still missing in action. Pilot Ken Gaithen's plane all bailed out and all survived. First Lieutenant Grover Mitchell's aircraft, seven soldiers were killed in action and three remained missing in action. Lieutenant Robert Fisher's plane had three crew members dead 
and seven missing in action. First Lieutenant Freeman's aircraft, two men were found dead at the wreckage and eight were missing in action. Lieutenant John Kane's plane had four airmen dead, six missing in action, and pilot Roland Olson's plane, all of the crew bailed out and survived. So in addition to the 11 bombers of the 461st that were shot down over the target, four more were lost on this mission. The plane piloted by 2nd Lieutenant Douglas Heron was one of only eight that returned to the base, was so badly shot up that it had to be salvaged. 2nd Lieutenant Casper T. Jenkins, with three wounded men aboard, bailed out of his plane when they attempted to land. 1st Lieutenant Edgar Trenner used parachutes as a substitute for flaps, and landing with a punctured tire, had to bail out of his plane at the base. And 2nd Lieutenant Robert Webster bailed his crew out over the friendly island of Vesey. 15 out of the 26 planes in Bob's 461st bomber group did not make it back the 418 miles to the base. And there are thousands of stories of heroism and sacrifice in wartime. And I wanted to share this one that I feel like encapsulates the essence of the greatest generation. The captain's group had just dropped their bombs and turned away from the target area when the German fighter planes struck in force at the high squadron. Explosions racked the captain's plane. Number four engine cut off and a large segment of the tail was hit. Controls of the plane became difficult to handle by both pilots. Suddenly more machine guns and cannon fire ripped through the plane. All controls of the plane became impossible. The captain hit the bailout alarm and yelled over the intercom, Get out now. Get out. He turned to his co-pilot and shouted, Go. I will follow you. As the captain struggled to keep the plane level, he noticed the co-pilot still had his hands on the controls and had made no effort to leave his seat. The captain yelled, Get out. Now. Get out. Now. With a stern and gritty expression on his face, the co-pilot spoke. I'm hit, captain. I'm hit bad. I think I've had it. Save yourself. Go. The captain, shocked at the remark, leaned over towards the co-pilot and suddenly noticed the man's seatbelt and flying clothes around his waist was soaked in blood. The captain unbuckled the seatbelt and ripped open the front of the man's clothes to discover that his intestines had been ripped out of his stomach and was practically laying in the co-pilot's lap. See, it's over for me. Get out now. I've had it. The captain said, no, I'm not leaving you. I will not desert you. Maybe I can hold this thing together until we can get down and crash land. I refuse to leave you, the captain added. The co-pilot, now in severe pain and desperate for the safety of his friend, reached beside his seat on the right side and removed his service 45 automatic and placed the gun to his right temple. The captain, horrified at the man's actions, listened to the co-pilot's final stern and convincing remarks. It's too late for me. I'm hurting. I'm through. Now go right now. Or you can sit there and watch as I do what I have to do. Or you can leave and let me do my thing alone in my own way with dignity. Hmm. The captain hesitated for a moment, staring at the man's eyes intently. <clears throat> then unbuckled his seatbelt, stepped down, leaned over and kissed the man's forehead gently, <sighs> saluted and went out the exit. He never heard the shot, but he knew it would follow him the rest of his life. <sighs> I wanted to share that story and dedicate it to the memory of those unknown who did what they had to do in combat. 
in whatever fashion necessary, and in the end gave their lives in a gallant effort without the opportunity of becoming survivors like Bob. Back to the mission. Bob's plane was one of the 11 that got shot out of the sky. A German fighter 22mm cannon ripped through the plane, and in an instant the plane was on fire and the twin tails were shot off, and steering was no longer an option. One engine had been shot off of the plane, and another one was on fire. Bob hit the bailout button, and from this point, the Army only has two eyewitness accounts of what happened to Bob's plane from two pilots that made it back. So what I'm about to read is all the information the Army had after the mission. 765th Bombardier Squadron, 461st Bombardier Group, 27 July 1944. Statement. Quote, I saw Lieutenant Warren's ship flaming out of the bomb bays and wing tanks. The ship pulled out of formation to the right and dropped its bombs. The ship then turned over and was last seen losing altitude, still flaming from the bomb bays. I saw one chute come out of the ship. End quote. That was 2nd Lieutenant Francis W. Burrell. Another statement. Quote, on the morning of 25 July, on the raid over Linz, Austria, ship number 23 and its crew flying on our right wing was hit by enemy fighters and burst into flames. It peeled off to the left, going over on its back, headed earthward in a mass of flames. This was the last I saw of them. I was in the nose turret when it happened, and as far as I know, no parachutes were seen. End quote. Sergeant Walter J. Anzac. Back on board Bob's plane. So it's on fire, it's missing the tail, one engine was shot off and another one's on fire. They managed to salvo the bombs and the crew prepared to bail out. As right waist gunner Sergeant Norman Weissman was getting his parachute on and making his way to the camera hatch, he ran into tail gunner Glenn Myers who was yelling, my face, my face. His right eye was gone and he was out of his head. Norman told Glenn to back up so he could open the hatch and bail out. Glenn backed up and Norman did not see him again. The flames worsened and prevented any further view. Norman thinks he collapsed and died on the plane while it was still in flight. Everyone else knew where to go. Flight officer Fulton, bombardier, bailed out of the nose of the ship. He went through the hole that was blown through the nose of the ship. Sergeant Fisher, the radio man, bailed out through the escape door in the waist. Corporal Coonan, assistant engineer, bailed out of the waist of the ship. Sergeant Resnick, bail gunner, bailed out of the waist of the ship. Corporal Wilson, nose gunner, bailed out of the nose of the ship. Sergeant Wiseman, engineer, bailed out through the bomb bay doors, followed by the navigator, Lieutenant Embrock. Lieutenant Swishon, co-pilot, bailed out through the bomb bay doors as well. And Bob was the very last to get out of the plane. The pilots sit on their parachutes, so it was already ready to go, and Bob made his way to the bomb bay doors behind the pilot seat. At this point, everything was on fire, Visibility was non-existent, but Bob's muscle memory brought him down the steps to the Bombay doors. He could not see anything, but knew where he was. So he took a deep breath and jumped into the flames. I got up the Bombay door opened it's behind the pilot's seat. I had to go down a step. Everything, you can't see anything, everything's burning. So you just sort of take a deep breath and jump into the fire. 